On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome to the United Nations His Excellency Michael D. Higgins and to invite him to address the Assembly. Mr. President, Excellencies, distinguished heads of state and government, esteemed heads of delegations, Mr. Secretary General, dear friends. Gathering as we are on the eve of the 75th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations, undertaking a range of summits on addressing climate action, financing for development, health, the sustainable development goals, and the immediate challenges facing small island developing states, we can be in no doubt as not only to the complex and interdependent world we inhabit today, but of the interacting crises that now face us, crises that cannot be avoided, an ecological crisis as to our very existence, a global crisis of deepening inequality, and a loss of social cohesion that creates a crisis for institutional credibility. All of these crises sourced as they are in a global failure in relation to meeting, inclusive, in meeting inclusively global human needs. On such an occasion as this at the deepest level, we are all challenged to ask ourselves are we being true to the values and principles of the United Nations Charter? Are those values and principles informing our practices as United Nations members? And are those values being invoked to face the challenges that we will debate this week? For so many, these questions invoke life and death realities. As we meet the United Nations and its agencies, are under attack, be it through underfunding, withdrawal of support, and now so often by the explicit promotion of the most narrow version of a theory of interest by some of the most powerful, which is the very antithesis to the multilateralism the Charter demands. President Friends, Ireland believes in the United Nations, supports its aims, is anxious to become ever more involved in its work. And we must not be hesitant then in speaking of how the United Nations and multilateralism have driven major advances for people across the world over the years, building programs for poverty alleviation, better healthcare and education, and women's empowerment, freedom from violence. It is multilateralism too that has allowed us to develop mechanisms for conflict resolution peacekeeping and peace building. The progress made in the development of international law is a testament to the significant steps for humanity that we can take when the international community works in harmony. So we must this week defend, strengthen, and advocate for the strengthening of multilateralism. For us in my country, Ireland, the United Nations anchors our foreign policy and its charter, institutions and personnel, constitute a prism through which we view our situation in the world and how we wish our practices to be perceived and judged in the world. 
We view the United Nations as that special institution where newly free nations have found a home after their struggle for independence. Their emergence from shadows, legacies and distortions of imperialism. We see the United Nations as a forum that has been provided to give a voice to the voiceless, the marginalized and those lacking power and wealth. For so many, it is the only such forum available to them, and it is all the more important for that. For Ireland, too, the United Nations is also a great peace project, one that strives for fair and sustainable global development, for the resolution of conflicts both ancient and new, for the support of the many fleeing war, persecution, famine, and natural disasters. The United Nations for all of us, I suggest, must be a house of hope. It is a house where words have sought to matter, where words must carry hope. Think of what hope was felt, for example, in the galleries of those who came in the early days of independence to the United Nations. President, remembering this legacy, I could not speak here today in good faith or with authenticity in relation to the Charter without acknowledging that the international order is now again under grave pressure. The very idea of a rules-based order is being called into question and undermined. The international institutions, admittedly flawed and imperfect, which have been nurtured since 1945, and both which have brought much benefit to our peoples, are the subject of questioning, withdrawal of support, and even attack. The partnership, cooperation, mutual trust, and respect that are at the heart of multilateralism are embedded in the rule of law and on values which aim to protect all individuals on this planet, their rights, aspirations, and dignity, values that do not have a single origin in time, culture, or belief system. Multilateralism is, of course, in its best practice, a system that acknowledges its foundation on a principle of compromise, of shared vision, of finding the capacity to put oneself in the language, thoughts, culture, and concerns of the other. It allows the large and small, the powerful and weak, to coexist in shared concern and joint prospect for the betterment of a shared world. However, Throughout the ages, his history, history has shown us too many times the error that lay in the thinking of those who suggested that individual action, aggression, or as some might see it, adventurism, was a better way forward than the cooperative world multilateralism offers. Never more than today is the call to more closely ally our perspectives more absent. Never more than today have our challenges been of such a global and momentous nature, and never more than today have the challenges, and frankly the threats the world faces, called out for us to recognize our collective responsibilities, including those of intergenerational justice. To choose not to address these risks and challenges globally and multilaterally would be reckless, Rejecting the norms of collective, mutually respectful action taken together 
in favor of aggressive individual action or to resile to an old false and rhetoric of war promises misery, the misery of a continuity of instability, imbalance, social inequality, exploitation in every aspect of a potential shared life. It offers chaos and almost inevitably further conflict. President, Ireland does not believe that conflict is endemic to any region of the world, to any people, class of values or belief system. We believe that there are no conflicts that cannot be resolved when a real commitment is made to an understanding of the other. When an understanding of the other is attempted by mutual work on agreement, on post-conflict opportunities, the parking of alternative narratives of shared values, and of course, the institutional support given that gives continuity of peace processes. This is what informs our views of conflicts in the Middle East region, including the Israel-Palestine conflict. Ireland has experience of prolonged, seemingly at times intractable conflict, and of the painstaking work and compromises which pave the way for a peace settlement. And for this reason, the Israel-Palestine conflict resonates deeply with the Irish people. We have a deep sense from our own experiences of the centrality of national identity, of a sense of belonging, and how this persists through decades and centuries. Such a reality cannot be ignored, suppressed, nor circumvented. Peace processes have to find a way for different identities and narratives to coexist by creating a space where they no longer have to compete in a zero-sum game, and by finding a way through peace processes, address historic and contemporary injustices. In the case of Israel and Palestine, we are more than ever convinced that the needs of both peoples can only be fully achieved through two, two, through two independent, secure and sovereign states coexisting side by side in mutual recognition and peace. Both peoples have so much to gain from this, in creating a new and stable equilibrium. And we do not say this lightly. We know from our own experience that this will be an immensely challenging task to achieve, requiring enormous courage and difficult compromises. No peace process is simple, ever linear or without cost. But the only way to achieve lasting peace is through negotiations between parties. Ireland and our European Union partners have made consistently clear that we will not recognize any changes to the pre-1967 borders, including those with regard to Jerusalem, other than those agreed by the parties. We, as an international community, must ask again the leaders on both sides of this conflict to sit down face to face without delay. We must restate that a negotiated peace agreement based on two states will command unprecedented support, goodwill and international determination to assist and protect and defend that peace with all the means at our disposal. In the absence of progress on the ground, collectively we in this room have a responsibility to bring forward ideas drawing on our own experience to try to create and maintain momentum.
on our own island well before the negotiations that led to the Good Friday Agreement, we established a permanent secretariat in continuous session. It still sits today. Such structures can allow for the continuity of even the smallest achievements, the transcendence too of what might appear to be impossible differences, and the emergence of original proposals. President, dear friends, the challenges facing the international community today, interconnected and truly global as they are, are numerous. But none is more urgent than climate action. The devastating impact of Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas tells us that the need for action is staring us in the face. We must show solidarity and support for the Bahamas and all those countries in the front line of the climate emergency we are now living through. And climate change is moving so much faster than the efforts we are expending to or enlisting to address it. Climate action is essential, of course, if we are to achieve the sustainable development goals. And the cost of inaction is catastrophic, far greater than what it will cost us to set out on a truly meaningful corrective path. With the Paris Agreement, we have both the framework and the foundations to move forward. The debate on climate action in some respects has not only provided and continues to provide hope for those of us who place our faith in the multilateral system. It has been revelatory in demonstrating how global issues can be inclusive, how the voices of the small and less powerful can hold sway and can provide such a powerful lead. In this regard, the role being played by, for example, small island developing states is exemplary. Small island developing states, drawing on their expertise and their stark experience, have led the debate on climate change. And I say as President of Ireland to the representatives of small island developing states, that you're challenging the status quo with very good reason. Your cultures and your very existence are at risk. You have a unique moral authority to speak out for you are paying an immediate unbearable price for a problem you did not create. The international community must recognize vulnerability and value it as a driver for action. The commitments in the 2030 Agenda are collective commitments. This is where the strength of the United Nations lies, but our greatest challenge is in delivering the consciousness, the will to realize that the damaging, dysfunctional connection with which we have lived for four decades now between ecology, economy and society has brought us to the edge of a precipice. We need a paradigm shift in our thinking as to how we will combine ecology, economy and social life so as to achieve meeting the greatest of human needs. That connection with which we have lived for so long has not only been exploitative, it has failed on its own terms. We must embrace the paradigm shift that is necessary if we are to achieve the sustainability we committed to in 2015 here in New York. We must see and promote the connection between the measures needed to respond to climate change that will end the exclusions of global poverty and also meet 
the sufficiency needs of a global community in terms of food, nutrition, education, health and housing. We will need together to master the moral, intellectual and political courage to prevail in that to which we have committed ourselves to achieve. In the full knowledge that we will be opposed at times, divided, sought to be undermined by powerful, heavily resourced, unaccountable interests, which can purchase media space, interests who have often stolen concepts and language itself, and who will seek to do so again. We must all north and south of our shared vulnerable planet muster the courage to take action. For after all, even allowing for scientific innovations and improvements, we will need to make radical changes in the way we live, particularly those of us in the North. We cannot go on consuming as we are doing now, being consumed in our insatiable consumption. And there are grounds for hope in our making an appropriate response, I suggest. In many respects and in so many places, the people have been giving a public leadership in their response to assessments of the seriousness of the situation facing the global environment. Young people in particular have shown courage, innovation and resolve. I agree with Secretary General Gutierrez when he says that school children have grasped the urgency of climate action better than some global leaders. They having accepted the science with which they are now more familiar than other generations, and understanding the consequences of our present models, see not just the prospect of their futures, but ways of life and the biodiversity on which our very planet's life depends, disappearing due to inaction and short-term thinking. And while technologies have made the world more connected, young people and citizens all generations are asking us now for more than a reassuring verbal response to climate change. They are seeking that authenticity that is revealed when words are turned into action. They, these citizens made aware, are our allies for hope, responsibility and change. And it is wrong to ask the United Nations as an institution to solely carry the burden for an authenticity that is the responsibility of us all. That responsibility is on all of us leaders and citizens to encourage those with whom we share this fragile planet, to create a yearning such as that vast and endless sea of which the French writer Saint-Exupéry spoke, a yearning for peace, justice, and freedom from all fear. The challenges are enormous. So many young people worldwide are not allowed its chief fulfillment in employment, education, or training. One in four are affected by conflict or violence. Millions of girls become mothers when they are still children. We need to create an environment where young people and all of our people are seen as citizens with equal rights and as members of our societies with full rights of participation. Young people are now at the leading edge of the rapid technological revolution we're living through. And this is important for much of the 2030 agenda. The Paris Agreement and other international commitments can only be delivered with technological steps forward. For this to happen, 
we must ensure that technological advances serve all of humanity, that societies and their needs be the arrows, not the targets, for technology and its applications. For while technologies have made the world more connected, we can also witness the ways they can be misused to spread xenophobia or hateful rhetoric. And it is essential that the fruits of new science and technology are turned to the promotion and preservation of peace and not to a renewed pursuit and prosecution of war. This calls for an effective global-level institutional initiative, effective and accountable in a multilateral way. President, Ireland seeks to demonstrate our commitment to multilateralism in many practical ways. In the field of peacekeeping today, there are more than 600 Irish Defence Forces personnel, women and men deployed on UN missions, including more than 450 women and men on the UNIFIL mission in Lebanon. United Nations peacekeeping has deep public support in Ireland, and we are proud as a people to be the highest per capita European Union contributor of troops to United Nations peacekeeping, with deployments and missions across the Middle East and Africa. Ireland also remains strongly committed to the United Nations development work, while of course realizing that development has to be redefined to adjust to new circumstances of sustainability. It cannot be an introduction or an extension of what is failing. To give direction to our commitment, we launched a new international development policy with a realigned focus on four priorities. Gender, gender equality, climate action, good governance, and combating poverty, all to be delivered within the framework of the Sustainable Development Goals. An important element of our development policy is a small island developing state strategy developed following research and consultation with our SIDS counterparts. And it was an honor for Ms. President of Ireland to meet an island with more than 30 permanent representatives from small island developing states when the strategy was launched earlier this year. President Fritz, Ireland's development policy also focuses heavily on humanitarian <coughs> assistance or responses that are urgent and cannot be postponed. We will continue contributing to fragile and conflict-affected states with the goal of easing the plight of civilians in such places as the Central African Republic, Palestine, South Sudan, Syria, Yemen, and elsewhere. As we do so, we acknowledge that this is a response to what is urgent cannot be postponed, for we do not see humanitarian response serving as an alternative to the deep structural changes we need in relation to trade, debt, technology transfer, and migration. They are simply inextricably intertwined. As to migration present, how we respond to the needs of those forced to leave their homes due to conflict and instability is a moral test of our times and our common humanity. I had the pleasure of hosting the High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, in Ireland recently. I introduced him to four families who had sought refuge in Ireland. At that meeting where Mr. Grandi once again spelled out the vital work that his office is doing, all of us present were reminded that we are challenged to give authentic expression to what we mean by hospitality, to give meaning by our actions to our words. I'm very conscious 
that the most acute poverty too is in zones of conflict and that displacement of our fellow global citizens is increasing, be it from conflict, climate change or ethnic prejudice and hate. The UNHCR tells us that almost 71 million people have been forcibly displaced from their homes worldwide with 26 million cross-border refugees. It is important at the UN that we all acknowledge the generosity of the many states which shoulder a heavy burden in the front line. States such as Bangladesh, Chad, Ethiopia, Iran, Jordan, Kenya, Lebanon, Pakistan, Turkey, and Uganda. I say to the peoples of these states, you humble us all by hosting great numbers of persons displaced by conflicts in your neighborhood regions. And Ireland in its turn will continue to support refugees and support those vulnerable host communities who are such an example in reminding us as to what a shared humanity must mean. President, I applaud the leadership that Secretary General Gutierrez continues to show on migration. Migration is central to our Irish consciousness. We are a migrant people on a migrant planet. We have always been from our origin through our famine into the modern period. Our country, which historically has seen people leave in their millions, is now a country of net immigration. Today, one in six of our population was born outside Ireland. We have been transformed from a place where people were forced to leave to a place that now has the opportunity to be a real place of welcomes. I fully agree with the Secretary General when he says that the only way for migration to be sustainable and safe, not irregular and inhumane and dangerous, is for it to be out of volition and not necessity. And this means having integrated policies. The vast majority of the world's migrants move between countries in a safe and orderly way. However, unregulated migration exacts a terrible human cost lives lost at sea and across deserts, and a cost and lives ruined at the hands of traffickers, unscrupulous employers, and other exploiters. But then, too, how rarely is it that we ever hear of the positives? For example, the contribution of migrants to so many member states' economies and societies. For example, that 10 to 12 percent of global GDP in any of the last years was provided by migrants. But whether their movement is voluntary or forced, all human beings must have their dignity upheld. And a starting point for all of us, as the Global Compact on Migration makes clear, is that in a world where so much of migration is made inevitable and necessary, it must be well managed and safe, not irregular and dangerous. And this is something that can be achieved with goodwill and cooperation. President, finally, the coming General Assembly session will see key moments for disarmament. We will mark the 50th anniversary of the entry into force of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and its 10th Review Conference. And I am proud of Ireland's role in developing the treaty. And I reiterate our commitment to a successful re review conference in 2020. I hope that this conference sets a level of ambition for the total elimination of nuclear weapons the only guarantee of our safety. And it is for this reason that Ireland is a strong supporter of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Dear friends, one of our greatest challenges facing today then, as global policymakers, is how to anticipate and deal with complex risks, 
such as those associated with new weapon technologies. While advances in science and technology, such as artificial intelligence, are progressing rapidly, with countless potential benefits to society, the international community must recognize and respond to the risks and threats posed by the incorporation of these new and emerging technologies into weapons and weapon systems. It is for me difficult to reconcile the rhetoric for peace I hear formally from countries who accompany it, however, with ever-increasing efforts at, increase, at acquiring increased shares in global armament sales. Ireland is deeply concerned about the devastating impact of conflict on civilians, the protection of civilians and full compliance with international humanitarian law face new and greater challenges as warfare increasingly moves from open battlefields to urban settings. The use of explosive weapons in populated areas is a particular cause for concern. And Ireland is proud to lead efforts to agree a political declaration among states, setting out how we as an international community can ensure full compliance with international humanitarian law. I look forward to inviting states to Ireland next spring to agree a political declaration focusing on the protection of civilians from the effects of explosive weapons in urban warfare. Ireland, like many member states, is clear too on the need to reform the Security Council. For any entity to have legitimacy, it must reflect the makeup of the world in which it exists, the people of the world in which it exists. Quite simply, as we all know, many areas of the world are either insufficiently represented in the Security Council, underrepresented, or not at all represented. In particular, we continue to witness an historic and just underrepresentation of Africa, which was still ruled by colonial powers when the United Nations came into existence and the Security Council was established. And you have heard so many powerful speeches from an Africa that wants to be an Africa that can be humane. I think Africans must be allowed to have a fair say in council decisions affecting their own continent. We want to seek consideration, for example, too, of a designated role for small island developing states. The increasing effect of climate change on international peace and security gives this proposal even greater urgency. And just as the Security Council should reflect the composition of the UN's membership, I want to repeat Ireland's deeply held view that political reform of the Council must lead to a greater sense of participation, responsibility, and ownership among the UN membership, something we believe would be positive for the functioning of the United Nations more widely, as well as being more just. As we have said before, if the power of evidence and argument is to mean anything, then Ireland will keep trying to build a coalition for change. President, friends, Ireland will always value how the United Nations brings and can bring out what is best in us. We will continue to seek opportunities to test ourselves against what we aspire to be, including the achievement of the requirements of a new paradigm that combines ecology, social justice, and economy, and I add cultural diversity, in a way that achieves sustainability, social cohesion, and meeting
global needs sufficiency. These are the values that are driving the driving force behind Ireland's candidature for the United Nations Security Council for the 2021-22 period. We do not seek the support of the nations of the world to progress any narrow version of enlightened self-interest. We seek support for the opportunity to again be measured against aspiration by the ideals of the Charter and our ability to contribute and help shape societies seeking to achieve equality, deepen democracy, build an enduring peace, and do so with a shared purpose and a consistent, transparent practice. Mila Buikas, thank you.